1: coach jen from ocala florida and this is tara Tibbetts
0: from fort worth texas and you're listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of horses in the morning on the horse radio network for january i think we're coming at the 20th there we go episode 2603 good morning horse world This is our special once-a-month episode about fox hunting. We come to you on the third Thursday of every month, so please mark your calendar and come back and join us if you're interested in fox hunting.
1: Woohoo! And coming up on today's show, once we catch up on adventures from this past month since we chatted last, we have our uh, term of the month, which involves wear, uh, oiled gloves. I don't know what the heck they are and why we care. And then Nancy Williams Ambros, M- oh, I messed it up. Nancy Ambrosiano, who is the master of puzzle mm. drone hunt, stops by, and we geek out on foxhounds. And then Beth Dalmbrowski is going to stop by, and she is fo- has fox hunted a standardbred and off the track standardbred, and we're going to hear all about that. And it has a little bit of a star quality to it. So that's our show coming up. And uh, what have you been up to since last we chatted? Not staying home? Yeah.
0: Yeah, lots of staying home. Um, I actually haven't hunted at all since the last episode. And I had, I had, I had Jen, was it two weeks ago? Wednesday. So the first horse I ever fox hunted when I first got introduced to fox hunting was Jaguar, who was my, he was born in my parents' house when I was 13 years old. We own the stallion and the mare. He was my 4-H project that I I showed him as a yearling, and then I I started him as a two-year-old and showed him in 4-H, and then he showed a lot of talent, and mom and dad spent a bunch of money and sent him to a trainer, and we went to the World Championships in reigning, and then my mom showed him, and then I moved to Texas and fast-forward met and figured out that I could fox hunt, and he was my first fox hunting horse, so... Pretty remarkable creature to go from the world championships and reigning to
1: fox hunting. Yeah, not a typical career path.
0: No, and he, his mom was race bred and his dad was a son of Doc Bar, which if you're at all into quarter horse cutting bloodlines, Doc Bar is like the be all end all of cutting bloodlines. And Jaguar was 15 hands. So he was a little big for a reiner, but he was a delightful size for fox hunting in Texas because you could open and close gates and he would cross and jump anything. And I actually rode him, I worked at Justin the boot company for a few years and he participated in a photo shoot. They didn't really have, they had a bunch of like arena show horses, but they didn't really have anything to do that did cross country. And I was like, well, I fox hunt on Jaguar. I can use him. So we did a photo shoot and I got some amazing pictures of him.
1: Wow. How cool is that? Yes. So did you get to wear Justin boots when you did it? Yes,
0: Justin, they had an English line for like 10 seconds and it was wonderful um, and super comfortable, but it, it didn't take off (laughs) unfortunately, but I do have some really, and I can, I can send you to put in the show notes, some pictures from that, that were pretty amazing, but Jaguar colicked two Wednesdays ago. So not last Wednesday, but the Wednesday previously, he's 27 years old. I've had him since he was literally an embryo. He's never colicked before. He's really never been lame before. Um, the vet and I were entirely confident at ten a.m. that we would be making a call on euthanasia before five. It was wow. a really, really hard day, um, but he pulled through. He's fine, really. Yep. Wow. Um, were
1: you able to track down the uh, the cause or anything, or did it just get better? So what? What we were
0: both pretty confident it was is. So I've, I've had a little, um, Jaguar has bad teeth, like, and it we think he's probably had bad teeth his whole life. And when I say he has bad teeth, it's like they're loose in his head. Cause he, you can, you can literally shoe the horse in the middle of the pasture with no halter on. And I'm talking like hot shoes, like rainer slide <laughs> plates, like shoe the horse. He, you, he'll load in any trailer. Like he's just super easy, but he is a bear to do his teeth and kind you know as as i've worked through veterinarians in the 27 years i've had him um he just probably doesn't chew stuff very well never has so what we think happened is i've been feeding him soaked coastal hay for the last probably 6 years he's been getting soaked hay he can't chew it anymore and so we think it just got it got um impacted oh, in attraction. his intestines yeah Yeah, because she she did a rectal exam and she could feel a small intestine. And so she thought he maybe had a strangulation somewhere because she said you never can feel the small intestine if it's a basic colic, like if it's Mm -hmm. just a gas colic or like a stomach, you know, whatever. But we took him off feed and they did the oil and fluids and all those things. And it was interesting when when the vet left, she came to my house. And there's a whole other separate story of I didn't have a horse trailer because I ordered a new trailer. And I took my old trailer to the dealer to sell, and I hadn't picked up the new one yet. So I'm here with no trailer, and I had to call a friend and be like, hey, my horse is colicking. Can I borrow your rig? Um, so they brought their rig over, dropped it off. The vet left, and she was like, we had the whole conversation about euthanasia. Friends dropped off their rig, got him loaded, took him 30 minutes to the clinic, and I got him off the trailer. And the vet was like, I did not expect to see a horse that looks this great. So he um, stayed at the vet clinic for three days um, just out of a, an, abundance an
1: abundance of abundance caution. Of caution which I, yeah. Yeah. yeah, especially since you weren't able to say, oh, we know exactly you know, what was going on in there. And it was all a little bit of a mystery. Yeah. 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 And he's in a yeah, high risk cat- category. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. And so we've taken him off of hay completely. He's just getting soaked off alpha cubes. He does still go on turnout, but it's been interesting. I've paid a lot more. Close attention to him and turn around. And he really like he grazes a little bit, but he just kind of like hangs out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I've and my husband would tell you that I'm kind of morbid about it, but I I've been planning for him to die for years because I don't want to be unprepared. Yeah. Well,
1: emotionally preparing. Absolutely. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And, that and, makes
1: perfect sense.
0: Yeah. And just to have, you know, and it could happen to any horse, but if, you know, X thing happens, like, what do we do? Like, or is it accessible? Like, I don't want him to suffer. And, and yeah. And so it's, you know, I just, I feel very fortunate that he is completely back to his old self. And it's just kind of funny. He's always been a really smart horse. Um, This kind of harkens to our conversation later about, you know, different types of dogs, but he reminds me of a sight hound. Cause he's, he's not warm and fuzzy and wants to be in your lap. He just kind of observes things and, and participates as he deems appropriate mm-hmm. and, um, very smart, very, very conscientious of his environment. And mm-hmm. I just seen a change in him to be like, he was in the barn aisle the other day and he's always been kind of a pig, like likes to eat. And he'd kind of come into the barn aisle and I have a wheelbarrow with that I keep the hay bale that I'm feeding currently. And, he walked over there and looked at it and just kind of sniffed it and didn't even take a piece. I was like, "He knows." <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I'm not supposed to eat that anymore. Yeah, uh, it, that does nothing good for me. I'm not going to eat it. Is yeah. is he is he taking to the new diet? He's he's cool with it.
0: Yeah, and I'd been feeding him alfalfa cubes. He's with just getting so more people. of them now. <laughs> yeah, he's just getting more of it. Exactly, he's getting more of them now.
1: Do you did you go with a specific? type or brand of alfalfa cube or just what was there available at your local dealership?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, I can't remember the name of the brand, but it's the same alfalfa cubes that we fed when I lived in Miles city, Montana. It's, and they're made
1: in, I believe Idaho. Mm-hmm. So I know there's different types depending on what kind of machine they use. We here at our house, we use the mini cubes because scooter doesn't get hard feed per se, but he right. does, we do give him meals at mealtime that can carry his vitamin E supplement and that we can mix with his his um bal- ration balancer. And we use these mini cubes because they dissolve reasonably quickly. Um, but they also have big cubes. And then they have these cubes that yeah. are super fluffy. It's a cube, but it's not as dense as the typical cubes that we're used to seeing. And they're almost giant. They're almost... Um, Very nearly tennis ball size that I've seen. So I don't know if you had a preference for one or the other.
0: So I do the bigger cubes. Not the fluffy ones, but I do the bigger cubes. Mm -hmm. Um, Not the mini cubes, but the the bigger ones. Because it's a little bit... Yeah, you soak that and it's a little bit closer to kind of like a hay consistency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he, you know... Everyone else is going to town on their hay and he, he loves his alfalfa cubes. He's super happy with it. Yeah. So, and I, you know, the beet pulp I think is just a little bit of extra fiber and he seems to get excited about it. So, and the veterinarian said it was great to continue to feed that to him. I love beet pulp. Yeah. <laughs> he's carrying probably the best weight that he has. And in, in the last like three or four winters, I would say, yeah. I always try to try to plump him up. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an easy keeper when he was younger, but the older he's gotten, he's he's not a hard keeper, but he's been harder to put weight on, and I think it's just because his teeth are so bad. Yeah. So the veterinarian comes and works on his teeth twice a year and like he has to get anesthetized.
1: Put him a- put him out, huh?
0: Yeah, he he's yeah, it, he does dorm is not enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's
0: pretty much perfect in every other way, so and that's—I mean—that's my whole like. If this is the worst thing I have to deal with with this horse, yeah, sign me up.
1: Yeah, I agree. Those those gems are so. Yeah, he was—he's your horse of a lifetime. He's your horse, heart horse. Yeah. When
0: I that's always tell cool. Kevin, if if I could like, if I had the finances and I could justify it, I would clone that horse in a heartbeat.
1: Yeah, they're pretty special. Yes. Yeah, pretty special. And speaking of special. Um, Every month you do a term of the month and a few weeks back we came across, I came across a Facebook post on one of the Fox hunting Facebook pages and somebody was asking about oiled wool gloves. I have never heard of anything called an oiled wool glove. So I said, please make that the term of the month. So enlighten me.
0: So it's funny the the person who asked about him was Sarah McKay and she's one of the masters for the new hunt from, for Ozark Island hounds. We had her on the podcast maybe last episode or the episode before that. Um, and she rise, she grew up in Virginia and she's very, very traditional with her attire and I've Googled it. Cannot for the life of me find like a definition or anything like that, but you always hear or read if you go to different hunt clubs websites and they talk about what is appropriate attire, they always say string
1: gloves, right? I've heard white string gloves. They're the ones that you tuck underneath of the billet straps, blah blah blah. Yeah. which white string gloves sound stupid to me
0: to wear fox hunting when it's cold and wet and rainy and snowy. Mm-hmm. right? Yep. Well, it makes sense if you look at so if you Google oiled wool gloves, trying to say this correctly they're very common in England and what so in my research what I found is that they're made with oiled aran wool a-r-a-n and so I was like what's aran like it is it like some some foreign word yeah And, and I couldn't find specifically that but I could find that it's it's like a size of um yarn is the aran and it's what it says in the definition I found is that you knit using four to five and a half millimeter millimeter needles originally created for fishermen's jumpers, which in England is a sweater use when DK, which is double knitting isn't heavy enough and chunky is too bulky, perfect for outdoor or warm clothing. So it's a size of yarn that is ideal for a fisherman's sweater essentially. And also evidently hunting gloves. And I I was trying to find a detailed description of the process, but what I, what they seem to do is they oil the yarn individually and then they knit it into gloves. And Mm. from what Sarah said on her post was she's never worn oiled wool gloves and her hands ever get cold. Which it kind of makes sense because the oil would prevent the yarn from soaking in moisture if you're in snow or rain. Yep. But obviously, a wool um, fiber is going to be warmer for your hands than leather.
1: Yep. Interesting. So, the so it's on my list oil. now. Yeah. I'm going to order some. Yeah. Oiled wool refers to the specific yarn being used to create the glove. That That
0: is my interpretation of what I could find about it.
1: And Aran wool is the specific diameter. I'm going to call it diameter. It might be string count or something. I think they do it by weight with with yarn. I have to ask my mom. She's a yarn nut.
0: Um, yeah, I think of whale, which is a corduroy thing. Like the yeah, whale. Yeah, I think that might side. be the
1: wool equivalent. Yeah. Interesting. I Because back in the day when I was in Pony Club and everything had to be just so, I always had right? white string gloves because I did dressage and white string gloves. And I fox on it in white string gloves. Two sports in the modern day that could not be further apart. <laughs> and yet yes. you wore the same gloves. <laughs>
0: were they comfortable? Yes. Did They're the incorrect. reins not slip through your hands?
1: Um no, actually the cotton that they were made of, their cotton string gloves. Uh when the cotton you know how cotton socks can be when they get wet, they actually chafe. Yeah. Cotton. The cotton string gloves had that same effect. When they were wet, they were actually kind of chafy, sticky. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They. I did I'm not intrigued. find them slippery. Like
0: I, I'm definitely going to order some. And they're they're very like. It's funny that like the the timeline of this. So I don't really have any like. I have a couple pairs of like like leather hands crochet backed fox gloves to wear for fox hunting. Mm-hmm. But I kind of feel like I needed to get some new ones. And I was like, I'm totally going to get some oiled wool gloves. Well, get them. Which so we can Country. talk about it on the show. Yes. So we can <laughs> do like a, you know, a product review. Absolutely. I'm fascinated.
1: We need to find we I. need to find the company who still makes them.
0: There's a, in England, like if you look in England, there's a like a bunch of websites that sell them. And I kind of think they're all made by
1: the same place. Um, I'm willing to bet that they are. Yes, it, I'm. I am on Townfields Saddlers Limited, and I'm on Hunting Gloves Hold Tight. So I think Hold Tight brand, and it yes, looks as if I they're saw maybe that made by Chester mm-hmm. Jeffries. Yep, Chester's our new best friend. We need to hear from them and find out all about the history and the. They probably use the same knitting machines since 1912 to make them. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for the, um, the, uh, background on oiled wool gloves. And one more question. No, yeah. I'm going to save this question until after we chat with our guests. I'm going to say, okay, it. it has to do with gloves. So stay tuned folks. But for now we are going to get Nancy, Ambrosiano on from Cazal Drone Hunt and have a little chat about what they've been up to this year and a little we're going to geek out a little bit on foxhounds a little bit.
0: I'm delighted to be talking today to Nancy Ambrosiano who is a master of foxhounds at La Drone. Mm-hmm. Y'all are in Santa Fe technically, right? That's right. And we you know, I've, I'm trying to not like focus a bunch this season on COVID, but I do think it's Merits conversation to talk to different hunts and and I follow Kozula Drone online on Facebook and I've actually uh, walked out hands with you all in the summertime not this summer but the summer previously and and New Mexico has had um, some of the stricter COVID guidelines but y'all have been able to adhere to those guidelines and continue hunting so I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about Kozala Drone's experience this hunt, you know, this hunt season with the, the COVID stuff. So tell us a little bit about yourself and Kozala Drone and how long you've been there and about this unique season we're having. Oh,
2: I'd be happy to. <clears throat> so, um, sorry if I clear my throat a little bit. I'm still recovering from COVID. So <laughs> it's uh, it, it lingers. Um, so Kozala Drone is a very small hunt, but a fabulous group of wonderful friends and terrific hounds. And um, we are, as you said, based, our kennels are based in Santa Fe, and we hunt around the area. We're fortunate to have really uh, terrific wide open public land that we have access to. So we benefit from the Bureau of Land Management and U.S. Forest, Forest Service um making that land available for us. Um, and our hunt this year has been definitely, it's, there's been a significant impact from the COVID restrictions and also just of our members being really careful. Um, you know, the, the age and status of many of our members is such that they are in the high risk groups. And so, um, with quite a few of our folks, you know, discussed and debated and said, okay, well, I, you'll see me after I get a vaccine. Um, then we've had others who've been comfortable with how we're managing it and have been able to continue coming out. Um, <clears throat> the trick for us in Santa Fe is that we are limited to groups of no more than five. And initially, that sounded like something that was just going to wipe us right out. And then we realized, well, no, that means that we have first field one, first field two, first field three. You know, We, we just split up into um, more widespread uh, groups. And uh, since we usually have um, just th- three or four whips plus our huntsmen, our groups have been within state guidelines um, but there there we did of course i think like every hunt in this country have had lots and lots of deep discussions about how could we make sure that we're protecting our members you know how awful would it be if the hunt was the source of an outbreak if we became a super spreader event uh we right would feel right awful. so um we've just been really careful we remind people you know Park at a distance. Please don't clump up. If you're not on a horse, wear your mask. And if you're on your horse and you want to wear a mask, good on you. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I think really your group gonna...
0: idea mm-hmm. is just brilliant. Like that is so clever, and I, I, I yeah. just I never would I'm gonna, have thought I'm of gonna that.
1: File that under making lemonade.
0: Yes. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think that's kind of what we were aiming for. And and actually, as it's turned out, our, our groups have been small anyway, as I said, because so many of our folks have just said, you know, we just can't do it. We we don't dare come out of the house at all. And And my experience was that my husband and I were being super careful. He was the only one who went to the grocery store and he would mask up and glove up and use hand sanitizer and stay away from everybody. And he was just so, so careful. So when he began showing symptoms the week before Christmas, and then I began showing symptoms on Christmas Eve, we were stunned. We, we went and got tested. He tested positive right then. And I didn't test positive until the next test. But by then I had already been at the barn with my farrier and my vet and, you know, everybody's masked and we're maintaining distance, but my poor farrier spent the entire Christmas holiday staying in his camper instead of potentially exposing his wife because he was waiting to get tested. And let me tell you, getting tested and getting results around the holidays is not an easy project. It's tricky anyway. So, um, So yeah, so we, here we were being so, so careful and he and I ended up with it. And we've had, as far as I know, one of our other hunt members, just one has had it. That's pretty um, good. I'm, I'm so relieved because like I said, a lot of the folks that are out hunting with us are, you know, in their fifties and sixties and are not people who really should be exposed to such a thing. So yeah. Um. The, so it worked well for us on hunting. You know, breaking into groups of five was terrific, um, and it made it quite charming because we could then bring along the next several generations of potential field masters. Oh, <laughs> Everybody <yes>. got it. <laughs> everyone got a try at it, um, and then of course I've been out for a month. So thank you, COVID. Um, yeah. But the the uh, then the the other impact it's had was on breakfasts. Right normally absolutely love our breakfast time together. We we do tailgate breakfasts that are, they're not ornate, um, but we have terrific food. We have wonderful cooks in our club. And to our great sadness, we've had to say, yeah, there's really not going to be, you know, initially we started with, there might be a small distanced breakfast. But then we said, you know, we're not even going to say the word breakfast if a couple of people want to get together after the hunt and sit down and have sandwiches at distance from one another, that's fine too, but we're not having anything that we would really call a breakfast. And, um, you know, we're not doing, not passing a stirrup cup. We're not sharing flasks except for people who are in the same bubble with each other already. So it's been, it's been difficult because we tend to be a fairly huggy group. <laughs> we want to yeah, we that's... want to sit for hours with each other and we want to greet it with great fulsome greetings and lots of hugs and and the fact that I haven't been able to hug anyone in my hunt for so many months is just it's just devastating,
0: yeah do you hunt the hounds who hunts who hunts your hounds? Oh gosh, no, I don't I would be. I would be hopeless.
2: Um, we have a, a wonderful fellow, um, Rick Atchinson, hunts the hounds okay. for us some of the time. And the other part of the time, one of our founding masters, Brian Gonzalez, loves to hunt hounds whenever he can. So uh, we have the benefit. And fortunately, our pack is is terrifically flexible. Like I said, our our hounds, I think, are completely magic. They can hunt where there's no... Where there's you know, no scent, where there's absolutely there's been no rain for weeks and weeks and weeks, and they're running through cactus and sand, and they find quarry, and we have great runs. And they do it for either of the two potential huntsmen. So I just think they're magic hounds.
0: Do you have some sight hound bred into your hounds at all, or are they just all oh, fox hounds?
2: Oh, so that's the fun experiment we've been doing. We have. We have our regular pack, so it's crossbred. Um, uh, and then our folks have been talking with um, the folks at Grand Canyon Hounds about their breeding program because they were beginning to experiment with more of a kind of a lurcher foxhound approach. And so uh, we actually picked up a few of their youngsters that are half saluki and half running walker so they're very different very different from what we have normally had but our you know coyotes are so darn fast and our country's so open
0: we thought and it's dry what
2: if oh so dry so we said what if the back had these sort of resources if so that we would have Peach, our strike hound, would be working the arroyo, and she would open with her funny squeaky voice, and one of the guys would honor her, and then we'd hear this lovely roar, and then it would just disappear. And so now we have uh, one of our one of our best of these strange combination hounds is uh, is called Stone, and so now we look up well out ahead, and there will be Stone ranging out, and if he sees the coyote, he flies like the wind. And and it's been absolutely fascinating to watch um as this pack matures and develops to see if will our scent hounds begin to coordinate with our sight hounds and vice versa. And I
0: think that's kind of a big Western hunt experiment kind of right now. Uh, uh, especially yeah, I, think, yes.
1: uh, I love this. Yeah, the first so, the first time fox hunting has has had a two you guys haven't had an yeah. update in, in in you know 8 500 years so this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah it is. N- it might be Sonic 2.0.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> we interviewed Rita Mae Brown it's been about a year ago it was it was the last episode oh, I, Emily co-hosted. Yes, and I
2: listened that was a terrific interview.
0: It was a wonderful conversation but she, I think she mentioned and we've talked about this a few times that really, you know, the, the future of fox hunting is in the Western United States, just because that's where there's more open land. And the fact of the matter is, is, you know, you look at Santa Fe, you look at Nevada, you look at parts of California. I mean, and really, even in the Midwest, you've got a lot drier conditions than what you have on the East coast. And I'm really curious to see, I've actually been out with a couple of packs that have some kind of you know, sighthound crosses that they'll they'll add in occasionally, kind of like what y'all are doing. And I actually have a a puppy that I got from a North Hills Oopsie litter that is half Welsh Foxhound and she's half Scottish Deerhound um, sighthound cross. And I oh, just think them be wonderful she's, she's beautiful. And I would love to stick her in with a pack, but I think most huntsmen yeah, no. would probably get mad at me near where I live, but she's young. So we, oh, yeah. we might have opportunities later, but so I just, you know, and I, I, I'm dying to come hunt with y'all. Cause I want to see, I want to see how they mix in and I'd love to go hunting with grand Canyon too. But obviously we, you know, after COVID before we spread our cooties.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. We've got to figure out how to, They're all the places that we've been saving up. We want to go these places. We're dying to do it. So it's like,
0: get the vaccine and then we go. So, um, but yeah. Well, I kind of wonder if Huntsman, like if your Huntsman is maybe enjoying a little bit, not having the pressure of a large crowd to please in terms of entertainment and that actually getting to kind of focus in and just really work with his hounds. Or have you noticed any difference there?
2: Um, Well, Fortunately, like I said, we're a small hunt, and generally the folks who are less tuned in are, uh, you know, they're they're probably, they don't notice, you know, the the less tuned in members of the field don't notice no matter what's going on. You know, you have to point it out to them. Look at this wonderful thing that's happening. The rest of us are just intrigued to see how this plays out, and we, we, you know, we had the discussions ahead of time. Where we said, okay, well, what if we got some of these interesting outcrosses and experimented with that? Would that be interesting? Would people support that? And you know, our our gang said, this is this sounds amazing. Um, we'll just see how it plays. And I would say this is the year we're starting to see it come together because uh, stone and dart are. Yeah. The Saluki crosses that that come to mind, and they're they're starting to get it. Although Dart is hilarious because they just have a totally different personality than the Foxhound. So so Dart's kind of flittering around, a little fairy child, going, oh yep. look a bunny, oh look there's a cow, oh. So you know the staff, they they went into it with their eyes open. They knew they were going to have to really work to get this pack to come together. And stay on top of what was the little fairy child wandering off to look for. But um, <laughs> they've, they've been open to it. You know, they're terrific folks. Um, so we have one professional uh, whip and then the rest are honorary. And they've all been doing it for a long time. So there's very little a hound can do that they haven't seen before. They've got their routine down. But, uh, but it has been interesting saying, okay, what does a Saluki grass think would be good to, to do up here? Yeah. Whereas the rest of the pack is, you know, taking a little shade under the tree and fairy child is out there going, oh, I should
1: chase a bunny. <laughs> Welcome to Sighthounds. So you, yeah. I don't know if you're the best person to ask this question. Um, as a giant Sighthound fan and uh, greyhound lover and greyhound parent, was there a reason that, the saluki was chosen over other sighthound breeds well that's
2: that's a good question and no i don't have the knowledge to know that um i would say peter at grand canyon is the is the person who did that cross and um I need, would probably, I need to ask you probably yeah peter. you're gonna have to ask peter um because you know he's he's such a houndsman. He's, he's got so much background and depth and skill and he's always had, you know, he's, he's got a kennel that's got lurchers and separately for a while they had beagles and then they've got the hounds, the regular foxhound pack. And then they began to do some crossing. And, and I think it was his recommendation that we went on. That was just, you know, here, I've got some of these. I think you would enjoy them. And I, the, the only thing that comes to mind would be maybe they're not quite as fast as a greyhound cross. I don't know.
0: I will tell I know you they somebody are like told lightning. me once. Yeah, somebody told me once why they did salukis and not others and I can't it's it's not clicking in my head because I know in North Hills territory which is in the Nebraska area there's a gentleman yeah. who he, he's not the huntsman up there but there's a gentleman who he likes to cross sidehounds hounds with foxhounds and he 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 hunts his own few hounds um kind of similar to the way a foxhound pack rye, uh, hunts, but he's he kind of does mm-hmm. it more by himself. And I think that it was something about the 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 climate of Grand Canyon and which Santa Fe, I believe, is pretty similar to the Grand Canyon climate that was why they chose Saluki's. But we'll have to get yeah. Peter on and talk yeah, about that. Because I think it's
1: fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And I, oh, I know Peter would the, be great. the modern yeah. the modern Greyhound is not a particularly robust animal when it comes to weather conditions or underbrush. They have such paper thin yes. skin because the modern Greyhound oh, yeah. has been bred to race under very specific conditions, kind of like the modern thoroughbred. A lot of those lines right. are rather delicate mm-hmm. as far as their soundness and, and their management requirements. I suspect that the modern racing mm-hmm. Greyhound versus the modern AKC Greyhound have a lot of similar issues. So yes, I can't wait to quiz him. Oh boy. Sorry. Oh yeah. So there, <laughs> well, there you I go. remember but being confused
0: because I think Salukis are more similarly sized to a whippet and whippets are actually pretty robust, but yeah, we'll have to, uh-huh. we'll have to pursue yeah. this because I, I and maybe I
2: it's think. also a coat thing, you know, because yes. they have a bit more hair a little bit more and hair. I yes. have two of them. I have two of them that are, we crossed, so we crossed stone with one of our foxhounds. So now I have, uh, two of our puppies are out here in my barn right now. And so I have Hawkeye and Hopi and, and they are cute. Are, oh God, they're so cute, but they're, so Hawkeye looks more like, she looks much more like a hound, but she's just black and tan. She's, you know, she's, I'm, I, am i i thinking, Oh, tricolor, but right. my Corgi is tricolor. Uh, Hawkeye is black and tan and Hopi is looks a lot more like her dad. She's black with a little brown brindling across her. It's very subtle. It sort of looks like she just might have rolled in the dust. But oh, pretty. they're so they're foxhound, running walker, and Saluki. One half foxhound and the rest Saluki running walker. So um I think that's fascinating. So they're beautiful hounds. And and it's interesting too because the one who's black and tan, Hawkeye she has a voice. She, and I, I used to sit out in the barn with them and practice going roo roo, because
1: I wanted them to have
2: voices. I wanted them to, to be able to
0: Cause you know, have are a quiet. nose.
2: Yeah, they're quiet. And I, we need, we need them to be that magic blend where wouldn't it be lovely right. if you had a sighthound who might put their nose down every now and then and had a voice would open. So, right. So I, I have great hopes for Hawkeye. And she's—they're both, you know. Their temperament is lovely. Um, they're just a. There's a. They're definitely more uh, not flighty, but a little more standoffish. Uh, a little more cautious. Yeah, yeah, a little tentative. More than I've—I've I've raised so many foxhound puppies that would just bowl you over. You know, they're just oh, I love you here, mom. Yep. These guys uh, will come and they'll bounce in front of you. But they're much less likely to be like in your lap. They're not. They're yeah. not quite as forward as potbuns. Yes, they, they play so close I, that to the does, vest. I, yeah.
1: yeah,
2: yeah, they're a little cautious, in, and one of them more than the other. So I think, fortunately, you know, when we've got wonderfully sensitive whips and a huntsman who understands all types of canine behavior, you know, we're not going to run into trouble with these guys getting spooked and being, you know, becoming upset. I think, I think they will be brought along in a really good sensitive way, but it's a very different personality than your basic, hi there, everybody kind of <laughs> lockdown.
0: Right. Right.
2: So, oh, I think it's, yeah. I think
0: we'll have to, we'll have to follow along and check in with you once a year and just kind of see how it's, you know, mm-hmm. this is kind of one of those, like, I, you know, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit annoyed by the doodle mixes you know the oh, the yeah. fancy right. the fancy mixes oh, yeah, because we me. want to not right. have to, yeah you know the fancy mixes to not clean our house i think the the mix of these hounds to try to create uh you know a purposeful hunting type dog i think is really interesting and um yeah it's just it's wonderful so so what does the end of the season look like for Casa Drone and do you guys have any, you know, post vaccination plans just to, are you just hoping to get back to normal or do you have like big travel ideas or what What does it look like?
2: Oh, it's, it's sort of a mix and all of, all of the above. Uh, last year COVID hit just before we were going to do our closing hunt, which closing hunt, we always have some ridiculous theme that involves costumes and and possibly performances I, we were going to do fox hunters on broadway but it, as our as our closing hunt theme and we had to cancel all of that so for this year since we will be finishing up the end of march and people will still not have had enough vaccine right. exposure yet um, you know we'll just quietly end with a bit of a whimper um, and then plan this as soon as we feel like everybody's had a chance and and there's a level of confidence, then we're going to, you know, aim to have a big party. But because we really do, we, we miss each other. Even, even if we're together to hunt, we, we miss just the hanging around and sitting side by side around a campfire. And normally we would be doing that for hours after the hunt every Saturday. I mean, my husband knows if he's, if if he's at home and I've gone hunting, I won't be home till dark. You know, I I yep. leave the leave the property at seven and get home at seven because there's that much just sitting around together that we are prone to do, and we're just dying to get back to that. We also want to travel. We're you know we're looking at normally we have one or two really great road trips a year. We've been down to Cloudline. We go up to Arapahoe. We've had terrific visits with Grand Canyon. And for several years, we've been trying to organize a trip out to visit the folks at Red Rocks. And so, you know, one thing or another gets in the way and COVID has been a larger thing than most. But when that's over, we want to do some road tripping indeed.
0: Wonderful. Well, if our listeners are intrigued and they want to come check out Kozula Drone post-COVID, how would they find you?
2: Off. Well, our website where they can find contact information is casoladrone.ning.com. That's N-I-N-G g.com com. And um, we have a Facebook page as well. Uh, you can't actually post to it unless you've been allowed into it. But since I'm a right. person, <laughs> I'll keep an eye out for any incoming requests. Or they can Perfect. just message me because I'm more than happy to... Uh, to coordinate uh through uh email and that's just nancyambro at gmail.com excellent and we'll put, put, the put the website in the show notes yeah oh great yeah yeah that, that that we'll put the website in the show
0: notes yeah yeah excellent
2: well nancy thank you so it much work. it was
0: a joy to talk to you and oh, get well soon fun. glad you're glad you're on the uptick from the covid and um again we'll be keeping in touch watching those Watching those sighthound mixes. I'm intrigued.
1: Well, earlier, I promised another glove question for you. Yes. Back in the day when I fox hunted a lot, this was in the 80s, um, most folks wore crochet back gloves to fox hunt. And a crochet back gloves for the uninitiated. The back of the glove, the top, is made of crocheted cotton or crocheted cotton nylon. And it's off-white most of the time. And the palm is made of deer skin. And that's what you typically saw in the fox hunting field. And in the 21st century, what are we seeing nowadays?
0: Well, with the cross-disciplining pollination, I don't know what the word I want to say is, but you have a lot of people who are new to fox hunting and they're coming from the horse show world. Yep. They pretty much all have black gloves oh. for showing yep. and my, and I'm no expert on fox hunting turnout because it changes with whatever like latitude and longitude you're at, depending in the world. Um, but black gloves used to be forbidden, but anymore I've never seen anyone chastised for wearing black gloves. And quite frankly, they look, you know, it makes your hands look quieter when you have on a black coat and black gloves. Mm-hmm. So, I think generally black gloves are fine. I actually ride. I actually fox hunt in um, some plain brown deerskin gloves that I got one at one of the feed stores locally. They're super comfortable. It's really what I wear to go feed when it's cold outside here. But they're nice. They they grip the reins well. They um, deerskin brown the best. Yeah, they're yeah. It, they're durable. They're like not expensive. They look nice. I was actually looking at some pictures from a hunt that I went on last fall, and I was like, look, like you know, they they blend in with what other people who are dressed very appropriately are wearing, mm-hmm. so
1: they don't stand out. You probably wouldn't want yeah. to wear your fuchsia SSGs. No, probably would want to avoid Correct. that if possible. Yeah. Or
0: like fluorescent yellow or lime green. Lime or, green would
1: probably be out. Yeah. But yes. yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That something in the in the off-white crochet family, or the black family, or the brown family, especially if yeah. you're out on Ratcatcher Day, and Ratcatcher being less formal attire, where you might be wearing a a hunt coat that is some kind of a dark green or brown um, plaid. Brown gloves would be appropriate too. Sure.
0: But wait, and when you get like, if you get really into fox hunting, we all live. For rat catcher days because tweet is way more fun than black.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Because black is black is black. There's
0: not a lot you can do with it. Yeah, a little more self-expression. So I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the podcast, but I sew. Have I said that before?
1: You know, you have you have um, alluded to your sewing projects, but we need to set some time aside on one of the upcoming episodes to talk all about your sewing adventures because they're pretty epic.
0: Well, and I've I've had a problem lately of buying a tremendous volume of tweeds. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I, I need to find a lot more hunts to go to to wear all these tweed coats that I haven't made yet. But <laughs> if you know, you just get a little more um, creative license with the tweeds. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I still believe in staying conservative and not doing anything crazy,
1: but. But you can do a lot it, it, of fun stuff and still have conservative colors. You can have the, yes, the beautiful Hunter or not even Hunter green, the beautiful olive green with the teensy tiny little pink pinstripe in it. You can do all kinds of cool mm-hmm. stuff.
0: Well, you'll see some like olive greens with like um, a subtle purple window pane. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I've, I've, got a little nuts like shopping for the fabric is as fun as like wearing it hunting yes the making it is a little more arduous but you know details
1: yeah and making a riding jacket of any sort regardless of which style it is and that's a whole different conversation is no laughing matter that is some that's some complicated sewing i'm sorry my mom used to make it when i was a little kid it is freaking complex there are too many moving parts too many yep yeah yep there we go i can't i can't make anything more complicated than a polo wrap (laughs) there we go so that's interesting stuff there we go well yeah time for us to uh get beth dombrowski on who is fox hunting with a less traditional breed let's hear about it yes
0: i love talking to guests about you know you know, not fox hunting on what they, you know, the stereotypical whatever X, the horse that people think about. So I'm excited to talk to Beth and hear about her experience. So I am delighted to have Beth Dombrowski joining us today. One of my goals with the fox hunting podcast episodes we have once a month is to um, just give examples to our audience about how accessible fox hunting is and that you don't have to have one certain type of horse or one certain type of saddle or one certain type of anything to fox hunt and that you don't have to gallop at all crazy high speeds and jump huge jumps or, you know, you can do that, but there's, there's a place for everyone in the hunt field. And I put out a little note in one of the Facebook groups for fox hunting seeking folks who had fox hunted on standard brids. And I have hunted with riders on standard breeds but I myself have not actually ridden a standard breed yet but Beth Dombrowski, our guest, has hunted, I believe, many seasons on a standardbred. So, Beth, if you would start off, just kind of tell us about where you live and where you fox hunt, and then tell us about your standardbred. Okay. Well, currently, uh, I live in Lovettsville, Virginia, and I hunt with Middleburg,
3: hunt with my son. And um, I've been in the Virginia area since oh seven and i'm hunting here in northern virginia my experience with standard breads dates back uh to chagrin valley hunt in ohio and that would have started in 1999 and i hunted there with howard lewis and um we had a, many different breeds that we would bring along. And he Howard is in the Show Hunter Hall of Fame. Okay, and along the line, yeah, he's was quite the gentleman. And um, at any rate, we would get a, a standard breads brought up to us because we were in Northern Ohio. We had a track right there. And in the midst of it all, I ended up with uh, two different ones. And one particularly became quite the favorite of a lot of people that that hunted him because he was so forgiving. He was very welcoming and there wasn't a mean bone in his body. Um, so he was great to get people out for the first time on.
0: So tell us a little bit about it sounds like you rode quite a few standard breeds then. Did you have the opportunity to ride some that were fresh off the track? Uh,
3: not, not in the hunt field. Uh, I, we had a young lady, um, who would come and work with different horses, uh, whether they were thoroughbreds or, or what breed, uh, particularly though the, the thoroughbreds off the track and the standard bread and repeatedly, um, her comment about the standard breads was that they were very smart and very quick to pick up on what she was asking them. And when she would, start to to teach them new things under saddle, they were very quick to remember what they did the lesson before. Um, so, uh, but I I did not ride, I'll be honest with you, I did not ride the greenies, but, um, you know, after they had been worked for, I don't know, maybe three to six months, um, then we would take them out in the hunt. And like I said, this one particular horse, his, his name uh, was expensive Jag, and we called him Jag, And he became just everybody's best
0: friend out in the hunt field. Did you own, you owned Jag, right? Yes. Yes.
3: So how old was he? Actually, well, he was four years old when I first met Jag. He came off the track. Um, He had a very conscientious owner. He had a um, injury and the veterinarian told her he could live the rest of his life comfortably or they could, you know, patch him up and try to keep racing him. And so he came to us and he was rehabbed and, um, the rest
2: is sort of history.
0: I mean, a four-year-old's fairly young though, to start, you know, to start hunting. i you know, and people will he, hunt thoroughbreds he, that young, but. Well, he, um, and, and saying that he came off the track, he well, was laid up for a year. He
3: had a crack and a, a, he had a, a, a spiral fracture. And so, in saying that, he did not hunt until he was closer to six or seven years old. Okay,
0: okay. So, do you feel like that long yeah. layup made a big difference? Well, he was off for uh, almost probably a year. We
3: put a, put him out in the pasture and let him heal. Well, let it in a stall, and then then he, after he was pasture
0: sound, we put him in the uh, pasture, um, and then he was brought into work. I always think of standard breads. Again, I have only been around them. I haven't ridden them, but to me, they seem like really workmanlike horses. Like they're, they they're, seem friendly and kind, but very they, workmanlike.
3: Um, they love a job. They love to do something. They they and enjoy being praised and to know that they're doing what you want them to do. Um, I think any veterinarian that's worked on them would also say they're very level headed. That's another thing that yeah. I cannot say enough about the breed. Um, I would actually ride along some with our vet and when I was in Ohio and, um, Dr. Lauren Wade, and she gave me permission to quote her tonight that, um, after a nuclear war, there will be two things left on earth, cockroaches and standard breads. And she adores them. Um, they're level headed and just happy to, to be, have hands laid on them. They're, they're not the nervous type normally.
0: Do you in the ones that you've written, and I, I you know, I think this is one thing that's maybe kind of intimidating for some people as to why they maybe don't, you know, seek out the standard beds off the track, is the difference between driving and riding. Is that was that a difficult transition for the ones you wrote or could you really tell?
3: No, very quickly, very quickly. They've had they are handled and they they very quickly take to saddle. I I honestly, um, we put a saddle on a standard bread and he was better usually than any thoroughbred. We get off the track, we would, you know, get him ungelded off the track and, um, they were still just steady
0: eddies. Absolutely wonderful. I love that. Is there, um, was Jag a pacer or a trotter? So he was a
3: pacer, um, you know, there, of course, being pacers and, and trotters, and I used to have a lot of people ask me, well, does he canter or how hard was it to get him to canter? And the one thing people need to remember is, of course, they can canter, some better than others, some are more athletic, but, you know, they are penalized and, and sent back, uh, depending on how long they break stride, but they break stride into a canter on the track. So, absolutely, pacers and trotters
0: can both canter. And it's not difficult to teach them to to, to canter on command?
3: So, there are some that are more athletic than others. I've always, I've never seen one that cannot canter. I see some that are smoother at it
0: than others. Because I do follow, um the new vocations, they, you yeah. know, have a fair number of breads that come through that, their program. And I think that, you know, if you're a fox hunter looking for a standard bread, they're, you know, and I, again, I don't know a ton about the standard bred, um retirement programs, but they do a really nice job on their postings, you know, discussing, you know, what the horror, if they're having trouble cantering and if not, and, you know, kind of to the level of their athleticism. So I think that that, that match what you're saying matches what what I've seen with the horses online. So, right. did you hunt Jag his whole career and and kind of um you have him retired now if I recall. Yes, he will be
3: he's 28 now. I have his cousin uh oh, who will be 30 on June the 6th. I know his birthday for sure. Um he uh Jag has forever been just a, a you know a, a calm um sweet guy, loves children, um would could do pony rides, uh, one minute, you know, lead line rides, but yet if you wanted to go out and and go around the ring on him, he was game to do that. He was happy and uh, happy to again, happy to please. But the best thing about Jag, and if anybody has ever been to Chagrin Valley Hunt Club in in Ohio, um, it's a very idyllic setting, a, a little mill stream, and we would hook Jag up to a sleigh during snowstorms. So awesome. we, we would, yo, know, we'd get hot chocolate and, and it was a big to do. And here we, you know, had this barn full of, of hunt horses and, and hunters, um, you know, show stirring, and we would pull out the sleigh that belonged to Howard Lewis and off we would go. And um, it, so he was a lot of fun and he re- just remains a lot of fun to this day. We we always, and you know, kids can go out and pet on him and, and um, give him carrots and things like that. And that's the biggest thing I want to say about this breed is they're so welcoming and so forgiving and they're good teachers. They're, um, they're very uh, olive branch to anybody that wants to get into riding, especially fox
0: hunting. Well, and, and. From your experience, where, where would you advise folks to, would you, you know, seek out track connections or is there specific standard bred retirement groups that you think are good resources to find horses?
3: New Vacations does an excellent job. Um, and if a, a new person was doing it, I would, you know, at want the, them to stick to a, a program that has a good evaluation of each horse uh, before yeah. they would just you know, willy nilly go out and do it. But, um, if there's anybody, any experts out there that would like to, you know, help these horses, um, they do need an outlet. You know, we, we need to find jobs for them. They're great trail horses. Um, you know, the list is endless, um, as the things they do. I will also tell you another fun fact about Jag. Um, he has also carried the Prince of Monaco. Cool. The the Prince of Monaco was in town for the Cleveland Pentathlon, and he was out, and they did some switcheroos to try to see which horse would be best for him, and it ended up for the Pentathlon he did not ride Jag, but um, one of his bodyguards had uh, rode Jag around, and and that's just how quiet he is. Like the bodyguard had never really ridden, and he just wanted to be on a horse to be able to keep up with him, the Prince.
1: So
3: um, yeah, they're they're just I can't say enough good things about them and they need advocates and we as fox hunters need to be able to draw many different individuals into our sport. As far as I'm concerned, we need, we need to um, get some more interest going here.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it's just, you know, and everything you've, you've said just really hearkens to the, you know, not everybody needs a first flight, you know, three, six, you, you know. know, field hunter no, we're, There's plenty of people who are going to be doing second flight hilltopper that, you know, you're going to enjoy it more if you're on a horse that's calmer and more unflappable.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Especially whether you're getting into the sport or maybe it's an older person who just doesn't want to, you know, be riding um, first flight, um, but they want something dependable and predictable.
0: And that is a standard bread. dependable And and predictable. And athletic enough to keep up because you know that that's oh yeah there's definitely a lot of hunts out there that you don't necessarily have to jump, but they'll go out for a few hours and I think the standard bread is a great answer to the question of just keeping Absolutely. up and keeping along if our listeners wanted to find out any more about you or jag or is you know do you have social media or any anywhere people could connect uh, I am on facebook Browski. perfect
3: b o m b r o w s k y Great. Thank you so much.
1: Another fascinating discussion and as I said, I'm a, I'm a standard bred fan. I love me a Jughead. So that's, that's really cool that she took that horse. And it sounds like he was another one of those heart horses.
0: Yes. And his, his name is Jag. And I, when we were connecting and talking about coming on the podcast, I was like, oh, my 27, soon to be 28 year old heart horse is also Jaguar.
1: Isn't that funny? Wow. Cool. And I, you know, I didn't, we didn't have time in the conversation because we ran out of time. I would love to know his breeding because I, yes, I, there's certain bloodlines that I like to follow in the standard breads because just like every other breed, there are certain bloodlines that had confirmation traits and personality traits, and things like that. And it's always fun to, to delve into those a little bit. So yay. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah, I think it's time for us to wrap yes. up a little bit here and where can folks find you and stalk you appropriately on social media?
0: Um, the best place to find me is on Instagram and you can just search for at TN tibbets two B's, two T's. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning.
1: There you go. And you can have all the shows with you wherever you go. If you haven't done so already, head on over to your app store and download the free Horse Radio Network app. It works for iPhones and Android. Or you can subscribe and listen to the Horse Radio Network shows, all 14 or 17 or however many we've got nowadays, on your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes, Spotify, and others. And thank you very much, Tara, for joining me and uh, chatting about fox hunting again. Of course. Good night. Good night.